Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 18 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Halloween is supposed to be the creepiest time of the year. The nights draw in early, and scary stories are told. When it's a true story and the murder is unsolved, it's even more unsettling. The killer could be someone you know, a person in your family or a kindly neighbour. On October 31st, 1963, the night sky was illuminated by a full moon. Two children noticed a woman peering out of a window in her home. They didn't know it would be the last time she was seen alive. Catherine Lillian Armstrong, an ex-headmistress, lived in Newcastle. Her home, a 10-bedroom corner property called Dorchester House, sat on Gold's Pink Lane positioned off Sandiford Road, a large, long central road that runs through Sandiford in Newcastle. 
The 70-year-old had relocated to Newcastle from Southampton 30 years earlier. When her parents moved, Catherine moved with them. After all, there was plenty of room. Catherine had not married, so when her parents passed away, she was left living alone in the sizeable property. She retired in 1957 at age 64, leaving behind her job as headmistress at Denton Road Junior School. Catherine's time was often then spent at the church. She had been a member of the same choir at the Central Methodist Church on Northumberland Road for decades. In this time, she volunteered for and was still on several committees. She was the treasurer of the mission fund and as such kept a small amount of cash in her house. Catherine's cousin tried to persuade her to stay nearby but downsized from the ten-bedroom house to a more manageable property. In an interview with the Chronicle newspaper almost 60 years later, Ada Ridley, who also lived in Newcastle and was the one to raise the alarm, spoke about her relative. My cousin's home was big, dark and gloomy. It got no sun. Time and time again, I told her she should leave and take a flat near me. Whether Catherine Armstrong did not want to leave the church congregation that she was so familiar with, or move away from the home where she had lived for so long, no one knows. Still, Ada did say of her cousin, she was very independent, and she said she was not at all afraid of living alone. Catherine's friend Lillian Launch became concerned when she noticed Catherine's curtains were still closed at 10.15 on the morning of November 1st. Lillian informed Catherine's cousin Ada, who didn't live far away. The women made the decision to call the police. When officers gained access to Catherine's home, they found the pensioner bloodied and lifeless in the downstairs hallway. Leading to the stairs, a few one-pound notes were scattered around her body. She was clothed in a dress and slippers. Perhaps she had planned on going to a church meeting with funds for the mission despite the miserable weather outside before she was set upon. Her clothes were dishevelled, and deep wounds as well as scratch marks were visible to her face. Catherine's thick nylon stockings were tied tightly around her neck. Later it was determined the wounds were the cause of death, not strangulation. The murderer seemed to be overzealous, using two methods to make sure she was dead. Lillian Launch was the person to formally identify her friend's body at the infirmary later that day. Neighbours congregated in the street during the evening, discussing the awful crime and the body that had been discovered earlier that day, only a short distance away from their homes. There seemed to be no bad blood between any of the residents and a neighbour that was described as quiet and kindly. 
on the evening of November 1st, the man had called the emergency services. He told the operator that he was the Sandyford murderer, and then he put the phone down. The telephone box used to make the call was traced to a place on St Mary's Road just under a mile away from the murder scene. The identity of the caller was never discovered. It's hard to imagine what the motive was for murdering an elderly woman. Catherine Armstrong appeared to have no enemies. Though robbery was initially suspected due to her living in such a large property alone, Nothing in the home seemed to have been taken. Newcastle police were quick to ask for assistance in the case from Scotland Yard. The day after Catherine Armstrong's death, two detectives arrived in the morning to help. The Detective Superintendent Eric Reed, and Detective Sergeant Leslie Alton. Upon their arrival at Newcastle train station, they travelled directly to Newcastle General Hospital with some members of the Newcastle Police Force who were assigned to investigate the case. They were there to attend Catherine's post-mortem. The two investigators from Scotland Yard made it back to their hotel just after midday. D.S. Reed addressed the press who were waiting for the officers to arrive so they could report on the results of the post-mortem. He told them, We have found no trace of a murder weapon, nor do we know when Miss Armstrong was last seen. D.S. Reed refused to disclose any further details at the time, however the results would later be revealed. Despite her advanced years, the post-mortem of Catherine's body highlighted that she put up quite a fight trying to defend herself from her attacker. During the four-hour examination, along with the stab wounds and bruising to her neck, extensive markings were found on her wrists. With an increasing number of policemen assigned to the case and the volume of paperwork, a base was set up in St Barnabas Church Hall in Sandyford, close to Catherine Armstrong's home. The police were interested in tracing anyone who was aware of Catherine's whereabouts between 6.30pm the night of her murder and 10.30am the next day. Several homeless men who were known to sleep on the streets near Catherine's house were questioned a few days after her death. Two children who saw the pensioner looking out of her window on Halloween were also interviewed. Furthermore, officers wanted to find three teenagers who had knocked at the door of a home just under a mile away from Catherine Armstrong's that same afternoon at approximately 2.30. The resident who answered the door to the trio described them as having greasy long hair and outfits which consisted of dark tops and trousers. They caused no trouble and had only asked the occupant whether the local bus travelled on the road nearby. It was noted that they had Tyneside accents. The young males were later traced and cleared of any wrongdoing. Speaking about the person or people responsible, Detective Superintendent Eric Reed of Scotland Yard told the press, There is the chance that she knew her attacker. 
Miss Armstrong was stabbed several times, but we are not prepared to say how many. We know it was a sharp weapon. Investigators performed a detailed search of Catherine's home. They could not find any signs of forced entry, which bolstered the theory that she knew her killer. Not only was her large home thoroughly examined, but the surrounding streets and areas including outhouses, rubbish bins and even drain pipes. But no matter how hard they looked, officers did not find anything they believed could be the murder weapon. The killer or killers could have taken the weapon with them, or the police could have missed the small object in the search. Is it possible an implement was used from Catherine Armstrong's home, cleaned after the murder and put back? It seemed unlikely, as the police examined over 30 sharp implements and none corresponded with the depths of the stab wounds. At an inquest, her friend Lillian, whose suspicions and actions led to Catherine's body being discovered, later said, This was unusual. This was a woman who got up early and drew her curtains between 7 and 8 a.m. I knew there was something wrong, so I saw her cousin and the police were contacted. It was necessary to adjourn the inquest until a later date. Shortly after the murder, Catherine's cousin Ada told local reporters that Catherine would have put up a fight. Musing about the motivation for her cousin's murder, Ada went on to say, I don't know if she would have any money in the house. She was well off, but not wealthy. Catherine's neighbours described her as the perfect lady and were shocked by the murder. They gave the police all the information they could, listing all of the residents and their comings and goings in the area. Some locals had a meeting to discuss the best possible ways to monitor the safety of the elderly sick or those people living alone in Sandiford. A suggestion was put forward that they could place a card on the front of their doors to make neighbours aware they sought support and required someone to keep an eye out for them. Even though the suggestion was made with genuine concern, some residents pointed out that highlighting if someone felt at risk, this could act as a calling card to people that wish to do them harm or take advantage of the most vulnerable members of society. A resident felt so strongly she wrote to the local newspaper. It's an invitation to those who are looking for an opportunity to break in. Surely friends and neighbours are kind enough to assist the lonely. Another local suggested an alternative alert system which effectively would be as clear as the card. I think the solution is for the local people to keep an eye on the old folks who can help by closing one curtain when they are in trouble or ill. The officer of the church that Catherine had attended for the last 30 years spoke to the press about Catherine's absence from a meeting that started at 7.30pm on the evening of Halloween. At first, her absence did not arouse concern. We thought she stayed away because of the weather 
the church officer said. The two children who saw Catherine through the window of her home placed her at the property shortly after the meeting would have started. She could have possibly been weather-watching, hoping it would settle so she could leave the house to at least catch the tail end of the gathering. On November 12th, officers attended Catherine Armstrong's funeral. They mingled with the mourners trying to find any leads or clues as to why she was murdered. They left without a morsel of new information. After speaking to her friends and family, they were no closer to knowing why Catherine was targeted than before they went to the service. A friend of Catherine's who lived in Bristol informed the police she would not be travelling to Newcastle. The pair seemed close, even going on holiday to Ireland together that year. She however quickly changed her mind and came to speak to detectives after an interview was arranged. Superintendent Reed said, She had decided to see us herself in the hope that she may be able to give some background information on Miss Armstrong that might help us. The next day, officers were following up reported sightings of three men on Halloween night. One, a bus driver, was cleared. He had been seen around the Gold's Pink Lane area for an hour that evening. He said he was waiting for friends, and his story checked out. But there were two more men the police were hoping to trace. One of them was reported to have been holding a package under his arm that was wrapped in white material or paper. It was stressed that perhaps this object was a clue as to what happened to Catherine Armstrong. A detailed description of the men was released. The first had an unkempt appearance. He stood five feet nine inches tall and looked to be anywhere from 19 to 25. He had dark skin and dark greasy wavy hair. Prominent facial features included high cheekbones and a large Adam's apple. He was wearing a dark v-neck jumper. The report to the police came from a witness who said the young man knocked into him when he was running on Gold's Pink Lane. Both men had a medium build, and the description of the second man was just as specific as the first. Five feet ten inches tall, approximate age twenty-four. His face had sharp features, and his fair hair was combed back. He wore what was described as a black donkey jacket. He had been seen twice on Gold's Pink Lane with the wrapped package under his arm. The man was spotted about 7pm. Then he was seen by a second witness around five minutes later. He wasn't acting suspiciously, just walking, appearing to be en route somewhere. Despite the best efforts of the detectives to track the men down, only the bus driver came forward. Officers had worked hard to interview 5,000 people in a half-mile radius. However, the questioning had now reduced to 100 potential witnesses a day. 
though considerations were being made to widen the net to include up to 15,000 people. Due to limited resources and time constraints, the task had to be completed in one week. With 50 officers now working on the case in some capacity, it seemed like a realistic goal. Still, the question was, would it be the best way to focus their resources? By November 19th, almost three weeks since Catherine Armstrong had been murdered, the police were appealing for information on a woman seen talking to Catherine less than a day before she died. The woman, described by a neighbour, was 50 to 60 years old, approximately 5 feet 2 inches tall, wearing a round hat and a dark overcoat, perhaps navy or grey. The witness said that the woman was stout in build and that she was there during the daylight hours. The mystery woman or anyone who recognised the description was urged to come forward. An appeal was televised, and although there were high hopes for tips to come flooding in, only one person already connected to the incident was named. Someone officers had already spoken to four times. They were ultimately cleared of being in the area of Gold's Pink Lane. At the time, 1963, Catherine Lillian Armstrong's killing was the most significant murder hunt in Newcastle history. Detectives travelled as far as Germany to speak to servicemen who had been on leave in the Sandiford area on Halloween. They were questioned, but again the officers' queries bore no fruit. By the end of November, over 12,000 people had been questioned. Detectives revealed they were backtracking on the theory that it was someone passing through. They now believe the motive could have been a robbery. Perhaps they were informed by a friend or family member that specific items were in fact missing. They grew to believe the perpetrator or perpetrators were local. The amount of blood at the scene and veracity of the attack would have meant the attacker or attackers would have extremely bloody clothing. Someone would have noticed them if they had a considerable distance to travel. Also, Halloween was not celebrated in the 1960s in the same way it is today, so the person or people responsible couldn't disappear into a crowd of party-goers in fancy dress. Fifty members of law enforcement were working tirelessly to find answers. Over time, often late into the night, 18-hour days, and leave was cancelled or limited. As a whole month went by, the local press expressed their concern that the killer would strike once again when there was a full moon like there was on Halloween. Thankfully, it came and went without a second murder occurring. Six weeks after Catherine Armstrong's death, the police at Newcastle headquarters were scouring through over 40 tip-offs. Since the murder, information had been trickling in, and it had led officers to London on more than one occasion. 
the avenues of inquiry came from different means. Letters, house calls and by telephone. But by December 21st, despite the hard work of detectives, the task force was winding down. Officers assigned to the case had reduced from 50 to 40. Detective Superintendent Reed from Scotland Yard would be remaining in Newcastle for Christmas, not returning to his wife and his two children in London. He would keep his residence in a local hotel just as he had since the murder. He was going to take a seat at one of his colleagues' homes in Newcastle for Christmas dinner. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
the murder of Catherine Armstrong was compared to that of Amy Brown, also known as Amy Barrett, a 71-year-old widow. She had been attacked and battered to death in her shop almost five years earlier on the night of February 26, 1959. The building on Churchill Street in Scotswood was just under two and a half miles away from where Catherine Armstrong was murdered on Gold's Pink Lane in Sandiford. Amy Brown had been discovered behind the cash register of her shop shortly after 6pm when she closed up. A local publican went to buy some milk from Amy's shop prior to the business shutting for the night. When she arrived, the shop was closed. She was just about to leave when a taxi pulled up. The driver that day was James Wilson. He was there to collect Amy to take her home. She always got a taxi to and from work. He realised there was probably something wrong as it was unlikely Amy Brown would have got home without a taxi. That particular driver was familiar with accompanying her. All of the drivers at the taxi company were. She had been getting lifts to and from work for 10 years, from her home on Lady Kirk Road to her shop on Churchill Street, 1.7 miles away. James Wilson had collected her at 7.15 that morning to take her into work. That evening, the taxi driver knocked on the shop door and shouted, but got no response. The door had been locked. He said that this had never happened before. James Wilson drove to Amy's home just to check if she had returned on her own. He got there and with no response, he came back to the shop and the police were called. That's when the grim discovery was made. When one of Amy's daughters, Florence, learned of her mother's death, she became so distraught she collapsed, then retired to bed for days. It was her granddaughter's husband that travelled from Gateshead to identify Amy's body at the hospital. It was confirmed that she received several blows with a blunt instrument. Amy Brow was thought to have been beaten with a plasterer's trowel, but it was later said at the inquest that the weapon was more likely to be a metal cosh. Like in the murder of Catherine Armstrong, a weapon was not found, though Amy Brown's injuries included different shaped wounds. Some of them were curved and others straight. Another similarity to Catherine's case, they both had deliberate lacerations from the neck up. The second taxi driver would later comment about how much Amy Brown paid to the taxi company for her journeys to and from work. 50 shillings a week, and I doubt she took that in a week at her shop. Another driver was interviewed and guessed what Amy's murderer could have taken from the shop. They would only get a copper. She always took her money home with her. She even took her stock of cigarettes back with her for security reasons. She had lost so many. It was estimated that only three pounds was taken from the till. After extensive questioning of the people in a half-mile radius, 
Detectives believed Amy Brown was attacked between 3 and 3.30pm. A young man was spotted around the scene, entering the shop at about 3.30 that day. He wore Wellington boots, not unusual attire for the workmen in the area. He was said to have an upright posture and been in his late teens or early twenties. He had ashen skin with dark hair. No witnesses saw the man leave the shop. After speaking with the police, a workman from a building site on the other side of the road to the shop recalled an interaction he had with a young man who was similar in appearance to the person described. It occurred a couple of days before Amy's murder. The young man had tried to sell the coat he was wearing to the workers on the building site. One of the builders said, He was wearing a duffel coat and grey trousers tucked into Wellington boots which were turned over at the top. He had a pot-marked face and long dark hair and looked as though he was down and out. Although he spoke with an Irish accent, there was a trace of Geordie in it as though he was trying to speak Geordie. The workman went on to say he recognised the man again two days later the day of Amy's murder. He was walking from the direction of the shop and went towards the coach and horses. Appearing undecided, the man continuously walked around a neighbouring street for some time. An identification parade was held about two weeks later with a witness. Public record does not indicate whether it was the workman who was called upon to identify the young man in a lineup. However, the suspect was not chosen. Whoever killed Amy Browell appeared to keep calm after the incident. They carefully washed their hands and left, locking the door behind them. Like with Catherine Armstrong's case, Scotland Yard were quickly brought in to help. There were parallels between the two cases. Both women were elderly just a year apart in age, a more common demographic for being the victims of thefts, not murder. Both women were killed in locations familiar to them that could be perceived as having cash or valuables. There appeared to be some money taken from the till in Amy's shop, and police made a comment about the location being in a tough neighbourhood. In fact, Amy's business had been burgled around 20 times. The police and the council had wanted her to close down and possibly relocate somewhere else, but she had owned the shop for 30 years and didn't want to leave. One of her neighbours said, She used to get herself in a bit of a state when the shop was broken into. Although the methods were ultimately different, Amy Brown being battered to death and Catherine Armstrong stabbed, both murders were particularly violent with injuries above the neck. The weapons used have still not been found. In the months that followed Amy Brown's death, a £1,000 reward was offered for information leading to a conviction. The person or people responsible could have faced the death penalty.
Interestingly, in the week leading up to Catherine Armstrong's murder, there was a strange incident in a public house just under two miles away on Summerhill Street. A pub manager, 32-year-old Peter Farrell, was preparing to close up, when at midnight a man unknown to Farrell approached him. The stranger then began to try and stab him repeatedly, but luckily the victim managed to escape with only flesh wounds. The local press labelled the unknown perpetrator the Midnight Maniac. So where are we now? After an entire year had passed since Catherine Lillian Armstrong was murdered in her home, gradually more details were revealed about the case. She had been stabbed 28 times around the face and head. The possibility that Catherine was murdered by a female was investigated. The mystery woman, 50 to 60 years old, just above 5 feet that could have been the last person to speak to her alive, has never been traced. She was the only individual police wanted to speak to throughout the investigation into Catherine Armstrong's death, who had not been found. But it was decided that it was unlikely to be a female killer, after the force worked with a forensic pathologist. They felt this was due to the depth of some of the stab wounds, which they believe were caused by scissors, not a knife. Investigating officers concluded that it was practically impossible for a female to carry out such a crime. Amy Browell's case also went cold, but 14 years later it was reopened. The investigation was reignited by a man walking into Market Street Police Station in Newcastle and telling staff that he knew who murdered Amy Brown. The tip-off from out of the blue was followed up. Officers travelled to Glasgow to visit the person the man had named. Though the investigation again came to a standstill. Maybe the length of time and lack of solid evidence made this line of inquiry collapse soon after it started. A police officer said, The tip-off genuinely believed he could lead us to the killer. Why this tip-off waited 14 years to come forward with this information baffles us. It would have possibly been more useful at the time. It is not known for sure whether the murders of Catherine Armstrong and Amy Browell are linked or not, but it is feasible that the killer or killers are still alive, and they could now be as elderly as the women they killed. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Mark Piotrowski, and everyone who supports us on Patreon.
They Walk Among Us will be appearing at CrimeCon, which is coming to London on Saturday, June 12th and Sunday, June 13th, 2021. For details, visit crimecon.co.uk and make sure to use the promo code TWAU to receive not only a special 10% discount, but we will also be giving away either an exclusive t-shirt or tote bag which you can pick up directly from us during the convention. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.